Welcome, everybody, to episode 10 of the Gameology Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. I'm with my co-host, Gabriel Attila. Hello there. And today we're talking about mechanics as a metaphor. This is a Gameology case study of the game The World Ends With You. Now, Attila, you are much more familiar with this game. Why, why is mechanics as a metaphor an interesting enough topic for us to cover? So just looking at The the World Ends With You in general, I, I this was such an interesting sort of like... Uh, cult hit kind of game if you will like it was a it it sounded very interesting it got some like mixed reviews some people who really enjoyed it some people who didn't enjoy it quite as much um i didn't necessarily get it when it first came out i had a friend who played it and i uh he let me try like the first sort of chapter of the game and i was totally hooked on the story so i went and found it and played through the whole thing it's since a game that i've played through um, with my mom to share it with her and with my girlfriend, just because it's such a fantastic story that I feel like it needs to be experienced. Um, and beyond that, I, I would not say that this is by any means a perfect game. Like there are plenty of things that um, a lot of complaints that people will bring up as like being very valid about the the combat system being kind of overwhelming. You actually have to look at like both screens of the DS simultaneously. Very difficult to keep on top of. But the game does some things exceptionally well. Um, story being one of them, but I don't necessarily want to talk too much about that because I don't want to give anything away. If you want to go experience it for yourself, it uh, was recently re-released as an iOS app, maybe even on Android. So I'd recommend checking it out for that reason. If you do nothing but play through this game on the easiest difficulty just to experience the story, I'd say it's worth it. Um, but we are going to talk about uh, both the how the game manages difficulty and the mechanics as a metaphor, which you mentioned as the, uh, as the show started. Um, but I'd actually like to lead with talking about the game's difficulty because that was our topic from last week. Okay. So the, 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 the basic way that the game manages difficulty is that as you level up, as you earn experience from battles in the game, um, your level is represented on the pause menu as a sliding scale. And what this lets you do is anytime you want, you can pause the game and adjust... I shouldn't say anytime. It's it's between battles that you can do this. But you can adjust your level and sort of like artificially deflate what level you are at. Um, like if you get up to level 10, you can drag yourself down anywhere between um, levels 1 through 10. And that means that the battles are naturally going to get much harder because you're dealing less damage, you're taking more damage, so on. All your stats decrease or increase based on what uh, where you set yourself on that slider. But as you pull the slider down your drop rate multiplier goes up. Oh, okay, risk-reward system. Exactly. And um, that, just, just that feel of like, oh man, this fight's really hard, I'm going to crank myself up to my full level, or, oh, I'm fighting this enemy who's got like a 0.1% chance on his drop rate, uh, I'm going to drag my level all the way from 100 all the way down to 1 or something insane, and hope you can survive on gear alone. Now, yeah, the nice thing about that is that I've been thinking about this a lot since our last uh, episode about difficulty in that how in the world do game designers, game developers manage to make games that are supposed to sell millions of copies or even appeal to, say, more than one person even in that could have varying degrees of skill and something like that that allows a bit of input where the, the player themselves can choose and have make that a little mini game all on its own where it's, you know, introducing a bit of a gamble into it. And just, to, I mean, as soon as you said that it increases the drop rate, bam, that got really interesting for me. And I wish that's something that more games had. Yeah, because we, we, I think we've all sort of experienced this feeling of like playing a role-playing game and you, you know you're fighting an enemy that has an insanely 
um, rare drop. Um, and something that you might need for a particular like uh, crafting item or quest to hand in or something like that. And there might be like an item in the game you can use to boost the drop rate or something on a, a one-time sort of basis. But just this feeling of like you make the fight harder for yourself and you really earn that rare drop. Right. So one way or another, either by like fighting a whole lot of these things or by fighting a particularly difficult battle, you can boost the drop rate. Now, beyond that, beyond just like the sliding scale of difficulty, there is another mechanic in the game which can modify the difficulty, and that is chaining battles. Uh, one thing The World Ends With You does very differently from a lot of our RPGs is that there are no, or I should say there are very few random battles. Um, typically, the player will actually like um, choose when they want to get into a battle. And they'll do this by uh, tapping a button sort of like on the DS's lower screen, which sort of initiates a scan of the area, and they'll see the enemies in the game called noise, um, just sort of like floating around the game world. And there are various scenarios where you um, can choose to fight the noise. Um, like there are certain instances where there is like um, a boss noise that you need to erase. Like that's the um, the objective of the game at that time is to like erase a certain amount of noise. So there are there are ways to bring you into the combat, but it's never just like you're walking around and you just stumble into a battle. At least that doesn't happen until later in the game for a very specific reason. Um, but as you see the noise like represented in this space, you tap on it to initiate this animation where it like starts pulling towards you. And if you tap on more noise symbols in the environment around you, they all get pulled into one big battle and you fight them all one after another. So that's why you like you create a chain of enemies. And that is also a drop rate multiplier because the more battles you fight in a row, you keep your health, you keep your um, like non-consumable, or I should say your consumable items. So like if you have a... Uh, an item which replenishes your health, then you don't get those back between battles. And it's just, it's one more way where, like, you don't start the game with this ability. You start with the only the ability to chain three enemies in a row. And then I think eventually you can boost it to five. I don't know if it goes beyond that. It might, it might just be a limit of, like, chaining five enemies in a row. But it, it definitely creates an interesting, again, risk-reward mechanic where you can take on as much as you think is necessary. And, of course... Um, not all the noise that you're chaining together necessarily uh, spawns the enemy that you want to fight. Um, and just because of the, the nature of enemies spread out in this space, you might have to like physically relocate your position in the game map to initiate a scan that's going to um, put the most noise on screen, right? Because you, like, you, when you scan an area, it's a limited subset of the total zone that you're in. So you might have to like reposition yourself in the world to give yourself like a full five noise on screen to really get a big chain battle going. And especially like there's even like more nuance to it than that because you have, um, you know, if you tap a noise that's really close to you, you don't have as much time to like go tap other ones. So you might want to like start with one that's really far away and then tap ones that are closer to you to really like bring them all together. Um, and then the game even introduces... Um, this is borderline spoiler, but the game introduces a type of noise that will like automatically engage with the player. 
um, like you, it'll try to like chain itself onto your battles, whether you want it to or not. And it's just another consideration for when you're engaging other kinds of noise. You got to be, got to make sure that you're not uh, getting caught off guard by these guys because they're especially difficult to fight. Um, now, just to wind it back a little bit, is this this game in terms of its mechanics? Is it is it sort of like a traditional JRPG in many ways? Is it, uh, but then with this added on top of, or, or like what is the general gameplay of this game? Yeah, okay, I, I should explain that a bit better. Um, I mentioned before that the battle system takes place across two screens, and it's active. It's like a, it's an active RPG. So you have on the top screen, you control the character with either the D-pad or the face buttons, just to make it um, ambidextrous. Um, and your top screen character can basically attack left or attack right, and manifestations of the noise appear on both the top and bottom screens. Um, so your your top screen character is limited to attacking either left or right, and they play a sort of mini game. There's three different uh, characters that you're paired up with, and they all have their own fighting styles, but all sort of fundamentally based on this idea of attacking left or attacking right. And that's meant to be the sort of like easier to mentally process um if you take your fingers off of the buttons you can also choose um if you want them to like go on to an auto battle system um just in case you can't handle the mental load of focusing on both characters because all the while you've got the top screen character you also have your character your player character on the bottom screen and you uh, basically equip these items called pins and the pins form your attacks uh, every pin has its own uh, type of attack associated with it. Some of them are activated by like tapping on the touchscreen. Some of them are activated by swiping. Um, some of them are activated by like drawing symbols on the touchscreen, that sort of thing. Um, and you uh, have up to six pins equipped to your player character that you are uh, like using and managing their different cooldowns and abilities. Like one of those pins, as I mentioned before, might be like a healing ability, which has a limited number of uses. Um, and yeah, so it, it's, it's rather mentally taxing to be able to like look at both screens simultaneously. And as, as interesting as the combat system is, I'd say it's definitely not one of the things I like the most about the game, but, um, it, it was still for the sort of like metaphorical level of like working together with your partner that's what they're driving at is like the, the sort of like the, the, the connection that you share with your partner, the, the amount of like sync that you manage. Like if you can get both your top screen character and your bottom screen character to perform optimally, um, like sort of trading back and forth, uh, with each other, that has a lot to do with like building your partnership in the game. So that's a, a sort of a nice segue into talking about the idea of mechanics as metaphor, um, which might be, uh, not necessarily, the kind of thing that uh, most people necessarily think about when they're playing games that a lot of games just have very surface level mechanics as you probably experience like your your day-to-day -day game um there doesn't there isn't typically a lot of like extra layers associated with the actions that your characters might be taking um and if there is sometimes it's accidental sometimes it's actually a very negative implication of what you're doing even without realizing it necessarily um and that was almost the case with one of the things that happened in The Worldlands with you, because I'm going to describe another mechanic in this game. Um, the, all the equipment items that you can wear uh, all is, is all like clothing, so like hats, T-shirts, um, overall stuff, uh, pants. You get the idea. And 
all those different uh, clothing items are associated with one of 12 different brands um, relating to like the symbols on the Zodiac. And the different brands have different popularities in different parts of the game, excuse me, of the game world, which uh, takes place in Shibuya. And Shibuya is divided into separate districts and different brands of clothing have different popularities within those different districts. So you can see um, the way that this actually impacts the game is that popular clothing items have a buff to them, like a, they're, they're uh, beneficial, like they gain some power up in some way, and unpopular brands have a debuff applied to them, and they make it that there's like some penalty applied. So like there's the top three most popular brands which gain the buff, and there's like the bottom two or three that gain a, a debuff of some kind, and then everything else is just sort of in the middle. And on the surface, you might be thinking, wow, that's probably a kind of negative message to be sending, you know, the idea of like, oh, you know, wear popular clothing so that your, your attacks deal more damage or that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people, one review on a particular website I won't name mentioned this. And I, you know, when I first heard about it, I hadn't played the game. So I was just kind of like, oh yeah, that is kind of strange. That is probably sending a bad message. But then when I played the game myself, I realized that there's more to that mechanic. When you fight with an unpopular brand of clothing, it is applying a debuff to you. But by wearing it, you make that brand of clothing more popular. Right. You're making it cool. Exactly. But now, is there, is there a benefit to starting off with a debuffed one and making it better? Does it eventually become more powerful than just using ones that were popular to begin with? There's not necessarily a benefit. It's just like you have a style. You have a set of clothing that you want to wear that you don't want to change out between battles necessarily. Um, you know, it's, it's this interesting sort of trade-off that the game kind of brings to the forefront of like, do you want to go into a zone and wear clothing that's popular there because it'll make life easier for you? Or do you want to like forge ahead and carve your own path and express your individuality by insisting like, no, this is my play style. This is my loadout. I'm going to wear these clothes until they become popular, until they rise up the charts, and then you get the buffs. Like, the, the buffs, like, the quality doesn't change if you, like, raise something up through the ranks, but it is a fantastic way of, like, influencing the ladder and, like, reinforcing the game's message about individuality and just, like, the, the idea that you can, you know, express that in a, in a game in, in something that seems very mechanical on mm -hmm. the outset. But just the, the implications, the, the sort of like social understanding of popularity and how that relates to um, this mechanic. You know, they, they could have just said, you know, they, they didn't have to say that it has anything to do with popularity. They didn't have to add the extra layer of influencing that popularity. They could just say like, this item gets a buff in this zone. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes you have items that are just like, this ring gives you plus 5% attack against dark enemies. Um, and that's all there is to it. But I find it much more interesting that they created this, you know, way of reinforcing their their message of expressing individuality with the mechanic. And that's that's what I mean by the idea of mechanics as metaphor. And it's you know, it's not necessarily something that uh, you're going to find, as I said earlier, in a lot of games. Um, oftentimes it would be exhausting to have like everything you do have some sort of additional metaphorical layer associated with it. 
Sure. But um, you know, when, when you when you pull it off well, you you have this like enriching experience in the game. And it's it's very important um if you don't necessarily anticipate that you're adding these m- metaphorical layers to your game, it can be very important to look at them anyway and ask like are these mechanics giving the message that I want them to? Um, or are there message that, messages in these mechanics that I didn't anticipate? Because it's entirely possible that without meaning to, you might end up creating some really bad message. Um, you know, as in the case of The World Ends With You, if they didn't have the added mechanic of your clothes rising in popularity over time, then it would be a bad message. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so just uh, a couple of reasons why I find The World Ends With You to be such a fascinating game. And I, I could probably talk about that game for, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of other things I'd like to discuss, but I think it would be more enriching if you were to check the game out and form some of your own opinions about the crazy mashup of mechanics that it was. You know, I was thinking about... Um games like Deus Ex, uh, games that let you choose the way that you want to get through a level and they reward you equally for having free thought. And And these are the games that base their plot around people's choice and voting and, and what is the right thing to do. And a lot of the uh, plot choices are about like, what is the right thing to do? And not necessarily giving you a black and white answer, but more of just here's six options. What do you think is the best thing to do? One example is that there's a, a scientist making a weapon and you have six different factions all, tell, all giving you different objectives. One says kill him, steal it. One says destroy the weapon. One says set him free. One says capture it so we can have it. And the game never once says what's this. It's not like Mass Effect, which was just mm-hmm. Paragon. There's no Paragon or Renegade. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately what happened in uh, the most recent Deus Ex game in the last generation was that even though you could get through a level with stealth or with killing, you would always end up coming up against bosses where you had to kill them and they really shattered that illusion. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about other games that, uh, say like Call of Duty games mm-hmm. or most most shooters, the way, they, uh, the way they mostly glorify murder in a way that's like, yeah, you get the murder bonus and, and you get points and a lot of positive feedback is coming back. And then they might try to switch gears and try to tell you that, oh, well, war is actually like really bad. Mm-hmm. Look, it doesn't this make you sad, but then, you know, two minutes later, it's all of a sudden, you know, patting you on the back for shooting so many guys in the head. Yeah, exactly. Like they'll, they'll put that layer of veneer over top of the experience of saying like, oh, you know, war is really terrible. It, you know, it, it has such a impact on people's lives and they end up with like conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder and all these kind of things. But I think um, one of the only games that's really tackled that seriously was called Spec Ops The Line. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of that yeah, game? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, it's, and I wish we could see more of that. And that was a game that really like broke through the mainstream and uh, and tackled some of those things and the real consequences of it. Because when you think of war now, it just seems so arch- like such an archaic concept, mm-hmm. you know, to battle over like territory. We've all... We've all got our spots. We've all got our lines drawn. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it just really makes you think about all all the different actions that you're doing in games. And I mean, even if you look at Mario, if they made you worry about the implications of like crushing and murdering, the huge murdering spree, he has to go on to save one person. And he obviously doesn't think that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few because it's him and Peach and everyone else is going to die. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely the kind of... Um you can uh, definitely start reading into a lot of games. You can definitely start mm-hmm. like um, inserting meaning where obviously you, the, the developers never intended for you to, to find meaning as in the example that you just presented. Like 
you can really easily demonize Mario or any, you know, video game character for like the massive genocide that they go on. You know, Samus is like killing all the Metroids. There's only one left in the galaxy, all these kind of crazy things. But, um, you know, the best games are going to bring that up. The best games are going to address that in some way. Uh, your average game is probably just going to say like, eh, they're the enemies. Don't worry about it. Just, just, you know, it's the objective. Don't, uh, you know, you're going to end up in a sort of like Milgram experiment kind of case where you just like, you know, an authority said, this is what I'm supposed to do. Therefore I should just do it. Um, which might have its own sort of troubling implications, but I don't, uh, I don't think that there's the sort of like cartoonish level of, you know, you almost have to think of the, the, what's happening in Mario games is almost like, you know, more representational of, um, obstacles like enemies. If you personify them too much, then the murder of every single enemy becomes a tragedy. But if you think of them more as obstacles, and this is a rationalization, right? If you, if you, um, like essentially dehumanize the enemy. If you just think about it as like a block that's moving across the screen, which if you happen to jump on it, you, the block goes away. And if the block bumps into you, then you die. Um, then you, you can sort of avoid the sort of troubling implications of genocide. But, uh, you know, th- this is the, the main reason I wanted to mention that you're going to end up with mechanics in your game that have, um, meaning associated with them, ascribed to them, whether you intend for it or not. So if you can sort of beat players to the punch and um, take a critical look at that, uh, your mechanics, before they do, then maybe you can ensure that you're giving a positive message instead of an unintentional negative one. And, and when you really start looking at it, it's like you, there's um, options and opportunities to do that throughout the entire game and the entire experience of it i mean even the way you have a loading screen happen like the colors that you choose the sound that you choose the ui of it how how you go about selecting missions um these this can all contribute to the overall experience because like you say people are going to be experiencing it in some way so there's all that opportunity to like really embrace that i mean you look at a game like undertale Mm -hmm. that took it very seriously in the way of um uh you can go through the game and not kill anyone and and people that have gone through it uh, it becomes like a very powerful, there's some really powerful moments later on in that game along the narrative and how you play it that just, that game is very deceptive. If you only played 10 or 15 minutes of it, you just are so not scratching the surface of mm-hmm. it and it just goes, it's, it's a lot like Alice in the Wonderland where at first it seems like she's in this funny little place with funny little cartoon people and all of a sudden it gets a lot deeper than that. So is that about it for this episode? I think uh, I think that's it. We'll call it. This is our sort of first uh, case study on the world ends with you. It's a um, different, obviously, a much more in depth focus on a, a single game than we we usually discuss a sort of broader concept. But uh, we're gonna add these into the mix every once in a while. It's not like we're permanently changing our format or anything, but we're just trying something um, something else in the mix, and we'll we'll see how people react to this. But uh, if you'd like to share your feedback and what your opinions are or submit a question that we will get to answering on the show at some point, you can visit my website at bluishgreenproductions.com, where you can find a list of all the episodes, as well as my extended thoughts on everything that we discuss, as well as a submit button for user feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at bluishgreenpro. And um, Matt, 
And you can email GameThingTalk at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter under GameThingTalk. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.